Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I am Autumn, the older sister. And as this is the episode we are releasing very close to Halloween, my fact of the day is going to be about my favorite Halloween costume as a kid. So our mother was very, very creative woman and liked to think out of the box and liked to be, well a weirdo, <laughs> kind of like I do. And so one of the ideas she got is how adorable and unique would it be if she sent her child to school as a basket of laundry. And so she got a little laundry basket, just a cheapo one and cut leg holes out. And then it came up and there was like suspenders for it. And then she put laundry in it. And I went as a basket of laundry. And I just, I don't know, I don't really remember how I feel about it at the time. But I'm like, that was so unique. And nobody had this costume. And I was so different. And so that is that is my favorite Halloween costume was a basket of laundry. And uh, I am Ivy, the younger sister. My fact of the day also has to do with Halloween costumes, but I'm going to talk about my least favorite Halloween costume, which ironically is the same costume that Autumn has such fond memories of. Because I was a very shy child who did not like attracting attention. And mom dressed me up as the laundry basket, and I had to go to preschool like that. And I don't remember anything about my peers saying one thing or another, but I do remember every adult I encountered that day asking me if I was full of dirty or clean laundry. And I remember being horrified and embarrassed and crying at the thought of being a laundry basket full of dirty laundry. <laughs> So I, I do not have positive memories of that costume. I don't have positive memories of most of the costumes that mom came up with. Very creative, but also stood out entirely too much for a child who desperately did not want to be seen. Yeah, you would have been done better with some like camouflage. It just allowed you to like blend in with the background, I think. But that, no, was, like, that was not her way. I just wanted to be like a typical fucking kid. Like I just wanted to be like a Disney princess. I wanted to dress up like a princess, like almost every other girl, because then I wouldn't be noticed. And I would get to be dressed as a princess. And I was pretty girly at the time. I'm not now, but I was then. So I'm I'm still I'm still kind of mad at mom for the laundry basket and the hippo. She made me dress up as a hippo. And I'm not pleased about that either. <laughs> That's my other favorite costume was the hippo because it's my hippo hat. I still have the hippo hat. Yeah, well, she made me wear it once. And thankfully there's no photographic evidence of the laundry basket, but there is of the hippo. And I'm glad I have, to my knowledge, the only copy of that photo. And it will never see the light of day. I might actually burn it someday. Anyway, so those are our facts of the day. But before we jump into the actual content of this episode, I did want to do just a little bit of housekeeping at the top. Uh, our last episode, I apologized for the persistent background noise that was my fault. I had a very toxic relationship with the mute button when we recorded that day. I kept forgetting to mute when I was supposed to. And as was evidenced at the end of the episode when Autumn called me out for being muted when I was supposed to actually be heard. I don't know what was going on with me that day, but it was it was not a good relationship with my microphone or the mute button that day. I do apologize for the background noise. Just want to put that right at the top because I know 
sound quality is important. And I get aggravated when I listen to podcasts and there's a bunch of background noise. So I was super annoyed with myself during the editing process. I was like, oh my God, seriously, Ivy, you sound like an elephant is pounding on your desk. I apologize. Yeah, I I tend to be pretty good. I, I was a little off on the very first couple episodes we recorded, but I do sound like an elephant, not just pounding on the desk, but I don't know, doing something rude and inconvenient with a giraffe very loudly. So I very quickly got good with the mute button. I Unfortunately, Ivy's mic doesn't pick up the noise for my headphones. So I don't hear the noise. I just hear when she's not talking. So I'm not able to stop what I'm saying and be like, Ivy, mute yourself. Because it's not loud enough on my end. But unfortunately, it does come through in the podcast. So we'll try to do better. Let us move into today's topic. As we said, this is our episode very close to Halloween. And so in celebration somewhat of Halloween, or at least acknowledgement of the fact that it is a holiday in existence near the time of the release of this episode, we are going to be talking about masks. So a lot of us out there, we wear pleasant masks. All of us, neurotypical and neurodivergent, do wear masks to some degree when we interact with other humans, just to be able to kind of bolster our sense of identity, to give us a script, to help us feel safer in some ways so that we know how to interact. And because most of us do want to belong or at least to make things easier, a lot of these masks are often pleasant ones. We put on a smiling face or a positive expression of some kind to try to grease the wheels of the interaction, to get us like, to get us a promotion, to get us through the cashier checkout line faster. And I think some of us, we wear these masks so often that we start identifying with them and they become part of our personality, which is neither good nor bad. It just is what it is. But today we want to talk about how some of these pleasant masks which I think a lot of times are almost celebrated, at least some of the ones we're going to talk about today, are celebrated by culture. They do have some consequences. There is some shadow to the light, some negative to the positive, some good to the bad, whatever words you want to use to describe that. But there is duality to the positive masks. And so today we want to explore that, to, to both explore both the positive and the light aspects and how these masks can be beneficial to us and how they can help us in certain situations, but also to look at some of the, the consequences of these masks as well and the shadows and how they can cause a little harm to us or even to others. And the very first one we're going to start with today is the Authority Sage Mask. And of course, we're starting with this one because it is the correct one to start with. And I would know that because I am the authority on this. <laughs> And I say that jokingly, but this is one of the masks I frequently wear. So the authority of the sage is the advice giver. They are the most knowledgeable or educated about something. They are a mentor figure. So if I go into a room and I feel insecure, this is the mask I put on. I am the smartest in the room and I have authoritied and I have saged and I have out-intelligenced, pretty educated people. I guess my, my trophy, if you want to call it that, is I used to work with a PhD, you know, doctorate level psychologist, 30 years of experience in the field, and I was able to out-authority that man. And it was amazing. <laughs> I know it's horrible, but yeah, the authority sage, the advice giver, the most knowledgeable, the educated, that is my mask. So that's where we're going to start at today. Because I was raised by primarily raised by Autumn and our grandmother, who are both on the autism spectrum, I, I tend to be attracted to 
people on that spectrum. And so almost everybody that I've ever been close to is on that spectrum. And this is a theme I have noticed in every single one of you, always the authority on everything. And you're great at bullshitting your way through things too. There is nobody better at, at bullshitting. I just got to say it. I am always impressed. And I, I often think about like how other people have no clue that half of the things that you're an authority on, you know almost nothing about, but somehow you've managed to make yourselves sound like experts at it. It is definitely a theme. You're, you're absolutely brilliant at being an authority on everything, even stuff you know fuck all nothing about. That is very accurate. I laugh because I can acknowledge that. And I think it's kind of funny, too, because I feel this can be kind of a touchy space for a lot of autistic people because we do feel that we are more authentic than a lot of neurotypical individuals out there are and that we lie less. But I also think that we comprehend that a lot of what people do in interactions is actually lying. Well, how are you doing today? I'm fine. No, you're not. You want to kill yourself. Why are you lying about that? We realize this. And so we just take it a step further. I mean, if you're going to lie about things, make it fun, make it interesting. But, you know, I really think one of the biggest motivators behind this mask is... It is a sense of control because that authority position does give you that control over the room, over the situation. And that's important because it makes you feel safe. That sense of control, that sense of power, it's not for the power itself. It's not so that we can receive the accolades and be like, yes, worship me and my beautiful large brain. It's more about feeling safe because a lot of people that are neurodivergent, that are autistic, I mean, the core point of autism for the most part is that we don't do well in social interactions because we do not innately pick up on how to interact with other humans. And so, at least for me, almost every other human is a threat. Every human that I interact with, even a little old 84-year-old lady is to some degree a threat to me because I honestly have no concept of what the rules of this game are, of what she's going to say, of how she's going to react to me, and then how those reactions are going to ripple effect out into my other interactions in my life. And when you feel that threatened, it's almost impossible to exist in that interaction. And so a great way that's not violent, that's not aggressive, is to become an authority, to feel knowledgeable. It gives you a, a place of safety to operate from, and it helps to define the social situation into a script that you're able to work with. So I think that's a lot of the motivation behind it. And I think also it does come across as condescending, but a lot of us do know a lot of shit. Like I know some of it sounds like bullshit and some of us do, and I will openly admit to this, get carried away and just start pulling stuff out because, well, I put this mask on, so now I'm going to play the role. But I do know a lot of stuff about very specific things because we do have niche interests. And I really want to let you know, both because I'm interested in it and also because autistically, I don't necessarily understand that you're asking rhetorical questions and didn't want this information. So now I'm giving it to you like verbal diarrhea <laughs> just because I have it and you seem mildly interested. And I want you to have it now, too, because I enjoyed the knowledge. Now you may have the knowledge. And I will make a note on that. I, I was teasing a little bit about the bullshitting, but on the flip side, 
every autistic person in my life is also incredibly brilliant. Most of the things, valuable things that I have learned, I have learned from autistic people. And of course, like I said, you know, neurotypical people do this as well. And there are other people out there that do act as the authority or sage that are neurotypical and they're not autistic and they may not see other people have threats. And so there may be some other motivator factors out there. But let's talk a little bit about the light of this mask. So on the on the positive side, on the good side, on the happy side, we are able to control the room a lot of times. We are able to control that situation and create a sense of power and open up a little bit of a window of safety when you are the authority. You also end up being seen as wise or looked up to and admired. That also, if you are in that interaction multiple times, like this as a coworker or somebody you see regularly, that is also creating a window of safety for you because they admire you and look up to you. And so now you know what the interactional role is you're playing every time. You can get cherished as a guru and you feel capable and competent. And don't all of us, no matter who you are, don't we all want to feel capable and competent and intelligent? And doesn't it feel so amazing when that gets validated that you are like, yes, you are smart. You are of worth. You are valid. And a lot of us do put our worth into how much we know or how much we can deliver knowledge to others. And so there's a lot of positives with this mask. On the flip side, though, we can't get in over our head. We do start backpedaling and start realizing like, oh, crap, oh, crap. I wasn't sure what the answer was, but they're looking at me like they expect an answer and I need to provide an answer because that's a scripted response now. And all of a sudden you're pulling statistics out of your ass for some study on mice in Japan that you've never heard of. And a lot of us, if we're good at it, we're really specific like that, too. And, and we can give you, you know, the article name because we know you're not going to look that up. And you can get power trips and you can get beliefs of superiority. I have had to watch this because especially if you're one of those individuals, neurotypical or neurodivergent, that puts your feelings of worth into knowledge. We are trying to compensate for a lower sense of self-esteem to some degree. And so you you almost want that. It's almost... Um, almost addictive in a way, the feeling superior, the feeling knowledgeable, because you need that validation so much and you're getting it on this one level. You also tend to get a little bit lonely sometimes with this because you're not really connecting with people a lot of times. You're, you're information sharing, you're swapping your encyclopedias, but you're not really connecting with people. And so sometimes when you wear this mask a lot, it can feel lonely because, yeah, you created a sense of safety and you're able to talk in the situation, but you weren't really able to connect because connection is a two-way street and you kind of took the power in the situation and now it's a one-way street. I, I do want to, to ask you something because uh, Calvin also often plays this role and I, I'm curious to see if this is something that you can relate to on this, Autumn. An inability to accept when you're wrong. So a perfect example of this, if you've seen the original animated Robin Hood, the Disney one, Robin Hood is a fox. He's a fox. Calvin, the first few months that we got together, we were talking about this movie and he was fixated on the idea that Robin Hood was a wolf. We argued about it for about an hour and a half. And then I finally was like, you know, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to prove to you that Robin Hood is a fox. And I don't normally do that. Like I usually let things go, but I'm like, no, I know Robin Hood was a fox. So I, I looked it up and I proved it to him. On the internet, I looked at multiple sources. I was showing him. He refused to acknowledge that Robin Hood was a fox. 
he was determined that Robin Hood, Robin Hood was a wolf. So what he did was he he went in search of proof that Robin Hood was a wolf. He found an animal called a maned wolf that looks like a tall, scraggly fox of sorts, so that he could prove to me that Robin Hood was in fact a wolf. So he still brings that up too. He's like, no, Robin Hood was not a fox. Robin Hood was a maned wolf. He was a maned wolf. Robin Hood was a wolf. We've been together for four years now. This and this conversation happened initially, like I think two, three months into our relationship. He still cannot accept that Robin Hood is a fox and will still bring it up unprovoked because he has to be right forever. <laughs> So is that something that you deal with too, Autumn, an inability to accept when you are wrong? I, I laugh like I'm, I'm on mute, but I was laughing the whole time because, yes, this this is actually something I have struggled with a lot. And this is part of that duality of any mask you wear is the ability to take it off, because unfortunately, a lot of us, we put these masks on for a reason. And if I put on my authority mask for a sense of safety to gain a sense of validation or control and I'm wrong well, now I'm unsafe. Now I'm out of control. Now I don't have validation. And so it's not just that I'm wrong on a fact. It's that I now psychologically wounded and I am fighting to defend the wound. And so, yes, I have I have had to develop a lot of self-awareness about this. When you wear these masks, there's usually a reason for it. And that reason often isn't a simple one. And so when you pull on the mask, you're not just pulling the mask off. You're pulling those strings that are connected way deep down in your psyche. Let's go ahead and move on to another mask that many, many people wear. And this is the leader mask, uh, the instructor, the controller, the manager, the CEO, the big kahuna, the guy or the gal where the buck stops with you. They are in charge. This is also a mask I cannot relate to at all because there is no part of me that has any desire to be a leader but i have been around a lot of leaders both good and bad so i i think that we can speak to some of the motivations with that and i, I think one of them is is the desire for control and a desire for power that is not necessarily a good or a bad thing i think there's also a lot of motivation in that they just want to see that things are done correctly a lot of people with leadership qualities, they have a very specific idea of how things should be done, the best way for things to be done. They see a void that needs to be filled. They see something inefficient that could be done better. And so they want to make sure that those things get done right. I think also one of the motivations is desire for more money and perks because positions of leadership, especially in the working world, usually do come with higher pay. You get more perks out of it because there's a lot more responsibility involved in it and a lot longer hours usually too. And I think a lot of people who seek out those leadership positions, they also do just really want to make positive changes. They see ways that things could be not only done better, but just to be better. They have this vision of how things could be and how they should be. And they want to be able to make those changes. And the best way to be able to do that is to get into a leadership position where you have a little bit more pull and you can actually make things happen. I do wear the leader mask on occasion. I am not a normal leader, though. I am, I am what I would classify as a reluctant leader. And I think one of my biggest motivations is that is a lack of trust in other people to do the job. And that is, that's part of why I have never taken on a management position. I've never taken on a supervisor position because I would be a micromanager 
and I would be an ineffective manager because I don't trust you to do it right. And that's why I lead. And so I think that does sometimes happen with a leader too. And I also think this is why you start getting some of those tough bosses out there is because they do have high expectations, high expectations of themselves and high expectations of you. Especially with good leaders, I, I think they really do have a strong sense of responsibility for themselves and also for other people and for the success of whatever it is that they're working on with people with those leadership qualities. One of them is that sense of responsibility. But I think some of it is coming from a very, I guess, caring space. I think a lot of them see the people around them and they see the uh, people under them in, in terms of, you know, that hierarchy and they want to make things easier for the good leaders want to make things easier and better for the people working under them. And they know that in order to make things happen, a lot of times that takes more effort and it takes more drive and it takes more time and energy. And so a lot of them want to take some of that weight off of the shoulders of other people. And they're willing to take that onto themselves because they do have that sense of responsibility. You know, and, and there are a lot of positives that come with the leader. A lot of times you get more perks and more money when you are the leader, especially if you're talking company or business, you're talking a bigger paycheck. You also get a lot more self-autonomy because if you are the leader, especially if you're the big kahuna, the one on top, you don't have people breathing down your neck. And I think sometimes that's a motivator too, is you just don't like being controlled by other people. People do look up to you. Or at least, even if you're a bad leader, they're afraid to talk back to you a lot because you, you are in charge and you have power and control over their lives. Because you are further up and you are more driven and you are putting in that extra work, good leaders are inspiring. If you think about leaders, not just of a business, but of maybe a cause, you're inspiring to others. People want to grow up to be like you. People want to do better in the world to be similar to you. You are somewhat of an idol in some ways or a role model. And you do get more power. And with that power, to quote Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And if you wield it correctly, you can make significant changes. There are many leaders that end up making things just so much better for the people that are working for them. So you do have the ability to shape the world and make it better. You know, one of those more... Uh indirect peripheral benefits that comes from being a leader because you do inter end up interacting with so many people because you're usually not just interacting with the people that are working for you. You're also interacting with people in other departments or other companies. You're just meeting a lot of people in general. And so you end up having a lot of resources for networking purposes. You end up meeting a lot of people with a lot of different skill sets that you can pull from. Now, there is, of course the shadow side as well, because that is what this is about today is that duality. And as a leader, no matter what it is you're leading, there is a lot of responsibility and weight of decisions on you. So yes, it is nice that you have that control and the power. But the weight of those consequences falls back on you as well. And a lot of times you do end up because of that overextended and overworked. If you are one of those leaders that's in that position because of hyper responsibility, so much more the case because you take on so much. Because you end up getting overextended, overworked and so much responsibility, a lot of times your relationships end up suffering too. So a lot of leaders out there they can have difficulty with relationships because they are working 
at whatever it is they're leading so much that they don't have the time to invest in a relationship like most people want it to be invested in. Yeah, I would definitely say that's a huge downside that I have some personal experience with, not because I myself have been a leader, but because I have been romantically involved with a lot of people in positions of leadership. And there's reasons why I'm not with them anymore, because often the, the weight of responsibility on you means that you have to give so much of your time and energy to those tasks associated with being a leader that you have very little time and energy left for your personal life and your personal relationships. And I think another thing that is a huge downside and risk when you are a leader is that because you are in that position of power and you have those responsibilities and other people's actions also reflect on you. The cost of failure is so much higher on a personal level because when the people working under you mess up in some sort of big way that causes issues and you can't fix it, that could have serious ramifications to the point where potentially you could end up being fired for it. Very closely related to the leader, I feel, because I think they share a lot of qualities, are the people that are driven. And I feel that this is a mask to some degree as well. And these are, I guess you could consider them your typical type A personalities, but they take everything very seriously and they're compelled to do everything to the utmost possible. They invest 110% in everything they do and they'll run themselves ragged to prove that they can do it. They're competitive and a lot of times they expect the same intensity and the same passion and the same drive from everybody around them. And I think this is one of those masks that can be especially dangerous to other people as well and can end up ostracizing you a lot because it comes with those expectations for others. Let's talk about some of the motivations for what drives people who are driven. A huge one. And I, I have a little bit of this in me. I have a little bit of intensity. I, I'm probably not to the extreme, but one of the things that I definitely have that I see in every driven person is an insane amount of perfectionism that they need to do everything. They need to do it as soon as possible, as efficiently as possible, and they need to not make any mistakes at all. I think there's also a lot of competitiveness in driven people. They, they always see themselves in competition with somebody, even if it's with themselves, there's always this degree of competitiveness. Can I do it better? Can I do it more efficiently? Can I do it faster? There's this desire to prove themselves to others, but also just to themselves to prove that, yeah, I can do this. I can set these crazy standards. I can set these crazy goals and somehow I make it happen. They want to prove that they're capable of doing that. And part of that is because they are just intense. That is another motivating factor. These people are generally just very intense people. They do everything with intensity. They work hard. They play hard. They do everything with passion and with so much intensity that it can kind of run them ragged sometimes. And as we talked about with the leader, one of the overlaps is a sense of hyper-responsibility. A lot of people who are driven, they do feel that sense of hyper-responsibility that goes along with that perfectionism. And because they're really driven, a lot of times they, they do expect that from other people as well. Some of the other motivations that maybe are kind of on the, the, the darker side here is I think there's a lot of fear around 
not being able to do things. A lot of the people that I have known who are the most driven are fearful of failure. They're, they're fearful, fearful of death. They're fearful of being disabled. They're fearful of not being able to push themselves, of not being able to reach these standards and expectations that they've set. They're fearful of failing on some monumental level, of not making the most of every single moment that they have. And I think too, there's also a little bit of desire, and I'm a little guilty of this myself, a little bit of desire <laughs> to feel superior to other people because you have a, a stronger work ethic or you're capable of doing more things. Maybe that goes into some of that competitiveness. I don't really see myself as a competitive person, but I would be lying if I said that I did not get a little bit of a, a little bit of a kick from from feeling as though I am more capable than other people. I'm not going to lie. I, I will admit to that. It's horrible and awful and I'm a terrible person, but that's, I, I do want to feel superior to other people sometimes, especially when it comes to working hard and being determined and powering through. That's, that's a point of pride for me. I think proving yourself is a big thing. And I think driven is a really good word that we ended up landing on for this title because <laughs> Driven people are both driving away from something and toward something. And so I think a lot of people that put on that driven mask are a lot of times compensating for something. And that could be something as simple as a fear of death and not leaving a mark. It could be some severe trauma and never really having a parent that loved them and feeling they have to prove their worth or their love. And so this mask, I think that's part of why people take themselves so seriously is because I think this mask can really tie into some very deep wounds for some people. And so everything is very serious for them because it's rooted in a very serious way. And a lot of them, I feel like they do have that sense of short time and immediacy and you never know when. Now, on the positive side, the light side, however you want to term that, they, they usually know their limits and they are constantly changing that. They know their limits. They push to the limit. They push just past the limit and they're constantly expanding what they can do. Because of that also, a lot of them have very interesting experiences because they want to do and they want to accomplish and they want to more and more and more. And a lot of that does lead to interesting experiences and a lot of knowledge. Because if you are going to climb a mountain or build a business from the ground up or whatever it is you're driven to do, you need to know how to do it. And so they end up getting a lot of knowledge and it's usually a lot of really good, solid knowledge because whatever they're driving from or towards, it's a very serious thing. And so they need that knowledge base to protect them to ensure that goal gets achieved. They usually also are successful at whatever they put their minds to. These are the people that will recreate reality. And this is where I see Ivy putting on that driven mask sometimes. I've always sat back and been a little bit admired by her because when she gets a goal in her head, it will happen. There is no, well, maybe I might fail. There, there is no plan B for her because it's what's going to happen. And she will shift and shape reality and do whatever is necessary to make it happen. And unfortunately, a lot of times that does mean she gets run to the bone psychologically and physically. I've seen her go through some horrible time periods because she said, I will meet goal A by X date. And she will. God knows she will. <laughs> but at what cost? I feel both flattered and called out. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, that's that is particularly true. Part of, and this can be both a light side and a shadow side of being driven, is the ability to push through everything. And that goes very much in line with what Autumn was saying. And that has been one of my, one of the defining characteristics of my life and my personality, I think, is the ability to just power my way through absolutely everything. There, there is no wall too thick for me to get to if get through if I have decided I am going to get through it, even if it means I somehow somehow have to create a wormhole to pass through from this side of the wall to the other side of the wall in a portal of altered reality, somehow I find a way to make it work. And that is what driven people do. Somehow they manage to make the impossible happen. But like Autumn said, at definitely a cost. And those costs can come in a variety of ways. Uh, one of them that has been particularly pertinent in my life has been difficulty in personal relationships. I have gone through a lot of relationships. Obviously they failed. <laughs> <laughs> and part of that is because I am a really intense person. I have very high expectations of myself. I have very high expectations of other people. I have a very set idea of what reality should look like and how things should be. And by God, I'm going to make that happen. I am probably not the easiest person to be in a relationship with. And because I am such a driven person in so many ways, I also am often compelled to get involved with other driven people. And that causes all kinds of issues, especially when what you're driven toward takes you in opposite directions. So difficulty in personal relationships is a thing. Uh, taking things to extremes also can be one of those shadow sides. And that can be with anything that's working too many hours. It's like what I did moving cross country completely by myself with no support network. Uh, a lot of people who are driven have very restrictive lifestyles. I have cycled through many different types of restrictive lifestyles. When I went back for a few years to being Mormon, I was very Mormon. I was more Mormon than any Mormon has ever been. I lived everything to an absolute T and managed that for about two years. Then I was like, yeah, I can't handle this. It was the same way when I was vegan. I, I tend to cycle through extreme restrictive lifestyles and I am trying very hard to balance that. Like we mentioned before, those extremely unrealistic expectations, that has been a definite shadow side in my life in a variety of ways. I have always had very unrealistic expectations of myself and other people because I am such a perfectionist and I have really had to work on that so that I am not setting myself and everybody else up for failure, essentially. And I think another thing that tends to go with it that can be a shadow side is addictions, because a lot of people who have very driven personalities because they are very intense, that can lead itself either to or lend itself either to having an addictive personality because you're always pushing, you're always seeking that next limit so you can push beyond it. And that can lead you to develop addictions. And also sometimes in order to maintain that intensity, you develop addictions as a byproduct. Lots of people in high-level corporate positions, this is one of those dirty secrets, but 
a lot of people in those positions, they end up using uppers and methamphetamines and cocaine and things like that so that they can keep pushing, they can stay awake, they can push a little bit harder towards their goal. And so sometimes those addictions are a byproduct of being so driven. I think also one of the things that happens with driven people is you, and this kind of goes into the personal relationships like you talked about, it's not just the intimate, but it's any relationship, you can end up pushing people away inadvertently. So it's not even like, oh, you have extreme expectations and you were rude or aggressive or condescending, but you're intimidating. I, I will openly admit to being intimidated by Ivy, to being jealous of what she's accomplished because she seems so much more capable sometimes than I am and so much more able to do things. And it makes you feel bad about yourself when you're not that driven, when you're not willing to go through any wall and rearrange reality to get to the other side of that. It can make you feel bad about yourself. And so I think sometimes it causes issues in relationships, not because of anything you do, but just because people feel like they don't measure up to you. You do end up looking more or better or superior and people don't like feeling inferior but that is one of the points in which the duality of the mask can be beneficial because part of the reason i have not separated from ivy and i've not given into those feelings of inferiority is because i saw the shadow side of it yes i did see her recreate reality and move across country for example and i also saw what happened the whole year after she got there and the depressive phase and the inability to do anything but work and sleep because she had exhausted herself so much and burnt out. So there is that duality. And I think sometimes that duality, that shadow side is is good for other people to see, the people we love in our lives, because it helps them to see the humanity underneath and say, yes, I am doing this, but God, look at the cost of this. Yes, I'm doing this, but look at what's motivating me and why I'm pushing this hard. And so I think it's good to look at both the shadow and the light of the mask. Even the shadow can be light. And I think that's why I like the word shadow and light, because you can't really have one without the other. (laughs) So let's... uh, move on to the soldier warrior. And this isn't just talking about military personnel, because there are a lot of people in the military that are not necessarily warriors. They are there for good benefits and a steady job. And there are also a lot of warriors out there that have never been in military service. But I will say I do think that there are a lot of warrior type people that are drawn toward the military or drawn towards law enforcement because of the type of personality subsets and because of the motivations that come with this. So our soldier or warrior person is willing and sometimes even eager to go to battle. They want to defend what is right or valued. These people are often also disciplined, structured, and regimented. Now, again, this can be military. This can be the the soldier that believes, you know, I am going to die and fight for my country because I am committed to this cause and I am willing to do whatever is necessary to make this happen. But this can also be down to a personal level of a mother that is trying to find a cure or a treatment for her child that has cancer and she is willing to move mountains and do what is ever necessary and fight the battle to make sure her child survives this. So this runs a wide range of, I guess, realities within ourselves. But these people will go to war and these people also will do whatever 
is necessary. And I think this is what separates them a lot from the driven, because yes, those driven people are pushing their limits and they often say they will do whatever is necessary. There's often a line they will not cross. And I feel like your soldier warriors, a lot of us, there is no line. There is no line. And if that means violence, it means violence. If it means horror, it means horror. If it means I cut somebody out of my life in the most horrible way possible, that is what will happen. Because once that battle needs to be won, the battle and the motivation becomes bigger and more important than anything else. And that's when you start getting into the ends justify the means. And that's neither, again, this is not passing judgment a good or a bad because all of these masks, all of these roles, and I think once we become healthier, more flexible, we can interchange these roles and play them sometimes and not others. All of them have a place in our life. And these warriors especially are needed. All right, so let's talk about motivations for the soldier and warrior archetype. This is what I am very familiar with, even though I don't identify as this, because I have been very attracted to this type. And as is evident in my current relationship, Calvin is actually former military. And he has pretty much every characteristic of that that soldier warrior type. So motivations. I know one of the things for for Calvin is he really values toughness and being capable and being resourceful and being able to make things work and being adaptable. That, th- that was a strong motivating factor for him, I think, is like proving that he is tough and proving that he is capable and he can survive anything and he can do anything. And I, I see that in a lot of people with that soldier warrior type of energy is that deep toughness and resiliency and there's almost this sense of being unbreakable and bulletproof or at least being able to give the appearance of that another thing that drives a lot of people towards that role is this desire for structure because there is often a very strict code and very strict rules there is a lot of structure in the ideology that often goes with having that soldier warrior energy also Sometimes it's to avoid introspection, to not be self-focused, but instead be focused on doing, on action, on making things happen. And for some people, and I, I've seen this not just in my partner, but in in pretty much every person I know who has kind of this warrior energy, I don't want to necessarily say that they're always running away from their problems, but there is this sense of, well, sitting and focusing on it and mulling over it and just sitting in this funk is not going to do anything. So I'm going to move. I'm going to act. I'm going to do something. I'm going to keep moving forward because that's all you can do is just keep moving forward. And that kind of goes back to that toughness thing. It's that pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality about life. I think also because when you are on the battlefield, whether that's a real battlefield or a uh, more of a metaphorical one, the kinds of connections that you form with people are a lot deeper. There's a sense of camaraderie and intensity in relationships and sometimes even straight up trauma bonding that forges these really deep, meaningful, ride or die kind of relationships. And I think that's very appealing to to a lot of people, but especially to these people who are warriors because Let's be honest, there's not a whole lot of people who really are 
able to dedicate themselves fully to that. And so it can be kind of lonely when you are that warrior type. So to find other people who share that drive and share those values and are able to relate to you and to bond with you, even in the face of catastrophe and trauma, there's something really compelling about that. One of the things that maybe doesn't really get talked about, but that I've kind of noticed in a lot of people that kind of have this warrior mentality is that they tend to be very pragmatic people. They do not see the world through rose tinted glasses. If anything, they tend to be a little bit more on the pessimistic side of things. They see the world as being chaos and there's a lot of destruction and there's a lot of negativity and there's a lot of bad things. And so some of them are driven to fight because they want to make the world better. And some of them are driven to this lifestyle and this mentality because they can't just pretend that everything is okay. They can't just live by society's rules. They don't have a mentality that allows them just to get along comfortably with your average civilian in the suburbs. Like they don't have the capacity to do that because their brains are wired up differently and their view of the world is very different as well. And I think that is a strong driving force for them in the choices that they make, especially if they do go into the military or they go into law enforcement or they go into some sort of profession that puts them kind of on the, the darker side of society and humanity is that they're not capable of seeing the world through rose tinted glasses. And they would rather be in a, they'd rather be on a battlefield than be in a house with a white picket fence. That's part of the reason like uh, for me, because like I do relate to the warrior and I think that's part of the reason I do as well is because I can't unsee what I've seen. I saw the trauma that Ivy and I went through. I saw the dark underside of the reality of humanity and what they are capable of. I then went into mental health and worked with children and saw what people do to each other. You see the nasty, ugly. You open your eyes to it. And for some of us, we cannot unsee it. And that leads to two things is one, it is an inability to connect with your suburban neighbors because what they believe is important to you no longer is. You're like... Why do you care about your lawn and your Lexus? This three-year-old is getting raped right now in this house. How is your lawn important? And so you do get a very skewed sense of the world because you're almost living in a different world. And I think there is some of that hyper-responsibility that comes in as well that somebody needs to do something about this. And obviously, it's not going to be Mr. Lawn and Mrs. Lexus. And you could kind of get a condescending attitude about it. And, and I'm speaking from that phrase, place because that is a place I live in is because how is your lawn important when this person is going through that? You know what I mean? It's hard for me to accept that, I guess it is. And you do feel like somebody needs to do something about it. But at the same point, I feel like you almost get a little flippant with your life. Um, you do get a lot more risk takers and people that are willing to die for the cause because you are also overwhelmed by it. Because the reality of fighting any battle is that it is overwhelming. If you actually start thinking about how can I save these children from trauma? How can I save our country so our citizens are safe? How can I save children from cancer? Whatever it is your battle is, 
usually cannot be won by you. And you know that that is beyond you. It's beyond your skill set. And because you are practical, you are very aware you're not going to be able to change the world, but you can change this one piece of it, even if it means you lose your life because things are fucked up anyway. What's it matter? And there is a little bit of that in there. And I do think that comes from a lot of us that have seen the darkness, have had to tangle with the darkness and had nobody there that was willing to save you from it. And so you realize that if you want hope in the darkness, you are going to have to be that hope. Now, there are a lot of positives with that. You know, there is the fact that you are able to save lives and do the dirty work because that is something that needs to happen. We need people willing to do this. Otherwise, it's who is. If your stomach's not strong enough for it, it doesn't stay up the problem from happening. So people need to do step in. And we do need people that are willing to accept that weight of freedom so others don't have to carry it. So I think one of the other things you see in this is, yes, you do get kind of that condescending attitude towards your suburb neighbors or the normality that you see. But that is exactly what you're willing to sacrifice for, because as much as it drives you nuts, that innocence, that protection from the dirty and the nasty and the trauma, you want to be able to provide that for people. And you do. You are able to shelter others. You're able to act as a shield for the nastiness around them so they don't have to experience it. I think another one of the light sides that comes with being a warrior, and I have definitely seen this in Calvin, is that that man is so confident in his abilities, even in the most extreme circumstances. And he should be, because there's almost nothing he can't do. (laughs) You can drop him in the middle of the wilderness with nothing but a compass and the clothes on his back, and he will be fine. In fact, you could probably drop him in the middle of the woods with a compass, but naked, and he'll still fucking figure it out. So I think that's one of the positives of having this warrior mentality is you usually develop very practical survival skill sets that allow you to, even in the most extreme circumstances, take care of yourself, but also take care of other people. You learn a variety of skills that are very, very real world and practical. And when most other people are panicking in a crisis situation, you don't panic, you run to it, you don't run away from it. And when you run to it, you run to it because you know you can do something. And then also one of the the other light sides of things is that on some level it does make things a little bit easier because your view of the world is more structured. It's in a lot of ways it becomes simpler as well. And simpler can often make things a little bit easier for you in your day-to-day life. I think those light points do tie directly into those shadow points, though, because you are great in a crisis, often because you're not sure what to do when there's not a crisis, when there's not a battle to be fought. What the hell are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to operate? And I think that's part of why that structure becomes necessary, because you need something to guide you when the crisis isn't happening. And like I said before, because you're always in crisis, you do tend to have less empathy for typical struggles. Oh, you stubbed your toe. That's so sad. Somebody's leg just got blown off. It's hard to get back on the empathetic as much as that's what you're defending that innocence and that ability to be upset about the stub toe level stuff. It's really hard to empathize with it on an emotional level. Both of those make it very difficult to live 
by societal standards because you do know what's going on. You really only know how to react in a crisis. You don't have empathy for a lot of these things. And so normal rules and normal societal standards and normal mores about how you're supposed to be to other people, they are really hard to follow because they seem so meaningless to you. You know, why do I want to go work a job that I hate and get money for a 401k to live in a place that I'm never at and to mow a lawn I don't fucking want when there's things that I could be doing with my life. There's battles I could be fighting. There are people I could be saving. And I think, unfortunately, that also means that sometimes you end up seeking out the battlefield. You seek out the next crisis so that you know how to act so that you know what you're doing and so that you can feel fulfilled and be the person you know how to be. One of the other shadow sides that come with the warrior is there is also a lot of duality in how you are received. And both of them have their own drawbacks. So on one side, you can get people that despise you because of what you've done. You are a murderer. You have you know, betrayed decency and laws to fight your battle. And so you get a lot of people despising you and hating you for what you've done because you did do what you needed to do to win that battle. But that was usually dirty and it was hard and other people are not going to like that. Then you also get the other people that are idolizing you. They're like, yeah, you did everything you could and you're a warrior and woo, appreciate your service. And that's really awesome and nice and validating. But at the same time, they're not really seeing you. They're just seeing the mask that you have. And so that validation doesn't really hit you a lot of times. And so that duality can also cause... I think further psychological issues because you have one person telling you you're absolute shit and you have other person telling you you're a god and that is not a healthy balance when there's nothing in between. So let's move on to our next mask that some of us wear, Mr. or Ms. or I believe the new terminology is mix independent. That person that just wants to do things on their own. So it's not necessarily about not needing or wanting other people around you. It's about wanting to do it your damn self. And I think I'm going to let Ivy talk about this a little bit because she might have a little bit more familiarity with this than I do. Yeah, I might have. <laughs> I might have a little more familiarity with this one. <laughs> but I do definitely want to do pretty much everything myself if I can. Let's get into motivations for it. One of those motivating factors for a lot of people, I think, who have that independent spirit is that you want things done to your standard. It's very hard to trust other people to do things because they're not going to do it right and they're not going to do it to your standard. Another strong motivation is you just want to prove that you are capable of being self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. If you're here, it's because I want you here. It's not because I need you. I am fully capable of taking care of myself and doing everything on my own. You are here as a luxury. I enjoy your presence. I don't need you around. There's also among a lot of independent people, a desire to advance their skill sets or to keep those skill sets relevant and current because it's one of those things. Like if you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. So they don't want to get rusty on their skills and they want to develop new skills because they are driven by that, that desire to be independent. 
that means you have to be multifaceted. That means you have to have a lot of skills. If you're actually going to be self-sufficient and independent, you have to know how to fix things in your house. You have to know how to replace the starter on your car. You have to know how to cook all of your own meals. Like these are things that come along with being really independent is having a versatile skill set. And I think also this is one that definitely applies to me is avoiding social debts. Part of the reason I don't want people helping me with things is because I don't want to owe you later because that irritates the shit out of me because you're going to ask me to do something I probably don't want to do on a time when it's really inconvenient for me. But if you've helped me out before, now I'm going to feel like I need to do this for you and I will be annoyed by that. So I would rather just avoid that whole thing and not end up with that social debt to begin with. And I also have a fear of relying on other people, which I think is also very common among super independent people. A lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us have felt that we were failed by people before. We do not trust other people to even take care of their own shit half the time, much less help us with ours. And we don't want to rely on somebody only for them to back out on us or to fail us in some way. It's easier to just do it yourself and not even stress about that. And I think also sometimes along with that is this desire to maintain good relationships. And in our minds, well, if I never expect anything from this other person, they can't fail me. So if they can't fail me, then my relationship with them will be successful because we won't have that, that period of time where I feel let down by them and we won't have to rebuild trust. You know, I'll just do it all myself so you don't even need to worry about it. So I don't need to worry about you not following through and me feeling disillusioned and disappointed in you. Also, on a lighter side of things, a lot of us who are independent, we have interests that maybe a lot of other people don't have. So if you really want to do something, but you don't have any friends that are into that, well, you're going to go do it yourself because you don't want to miss out on experiences. So if there's nobody to go with you, well, hell, I'll just go on my own then. So I think those are all, all um, those, the strong motivations for, for people to be really independent. I think also there is a subset of individuals, which I feel I would fall more into the subset, that are wearing this mask against their will. <laughs> so I am often seen as a very independent person, a very capable person, somebody that wants to just do it themselves. And if you saw me at work, that is definitely what you would think of. I don't want to be this person. I don't have the social skills and understanding necessary to figure out how to navigate relationships successfully to get assistance or to ask for help or to manage those social debts so that I don't look like an asshole. So I end up being a very independent person a lot of the time because I don't know how to do ounce-wise. And this also combines in with my trauma and that sense of safety that other people are threats. So even if I start to feel comfortable around somebody and being like, oh, well, maybe I could try to figure it out and stumble through this interaction that's a very delicate one because I feel like this exchanging of social debts which is where this independence comes in is extremely intricate and very difficult for many of us on the autistic spectrum I still see you as threatening <laughs> and I'm scared of you and so I'm not going to ask you for help and so I'm going to wear this mask even though I don't want to wear it <laughs> So I think there's a subset of us out there that are wearing this mask, but not because we want to, but because we don't feel like we honestly have a choice to wear something else sometimes. Now, uh, it, you do get some benefits out of this. On the light side, we are 
very capable people. Whether you want to wear this mask or not, you learn to be capable because you do still have to get shit done and you ain't got nobody to help you. So you figure out how to do it. I am I am the queen of MacGyvering. I MacGyver everything because I have figured out how to do what I need to do with the resources available by myself. I think too, when you are really independent, because you're willing to go out and experience things and do things without being reliant on other people to come along, I think you end up having a lot of really interesting experiences and you meet a large variety of people as well. Because one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't do this very often because I hate people, uh, but when you are somebody who's just on your own and you go out to maybe a concert, let's say, if you're by yourself and you go to a concert, chances are by the end of the night, some other group will adopt you. I don't know how that happens or why that happens. There must be something in other humans that I don't understand that says, oh, look, a lone person. Let us bring them into the fold. So you end up meeting a lot of interesting people and you end up having a lot of really interesting experiences. And that's one of the best things I think about being so independent is that when you're not afraid to do things for yourself, and to go out on your own, you get to have experiences a lot of other people would not have because a lot of other people are kind of sheltered within their subset of people that they already know. They go and do things with those people and they don't really branch out a whole lot. Being independent comes also with a sense of courage because you're putting yourself out there. You are in a vulnerable space. You are on your own. You are unaccompanied. You are exploring something new without having your support network to fall back on. And not everybody's capable of doing that, or at least they don't feel capable of doing that. It does take a lot of courage to put yourself out there. And you're not fearless, but you do have the courage to go and do. You don't have necessarily the same fears other people do. Or if you do have those fears, you're much more capable of overriding them. Now, there are a lot of shadow sides that come with being very independent. And one of those is difficulty sharing responsibility, even when you need to. This pops up a lot in romantic relationships or even you know, roommate relationships or coworker relationships. When you are so used to being independent, you just want to take care of everything because you're like, oh, it's just easier if I do it myself. But sometimes you have to share responsibility. Sometimes you have to work in a partnership. Sometimes you have to work as a team. And that, that is unpleasant for somebody who's very independent because they don't want to share that responsibility. They don't feel safe sharing that responsibility. They don't feel like the other person can be trusted with responsibility. They want to just take care of it themselves. Now, with that, you usually end up being very overextended because anytime there is something that needs to be done, you insist on taking care of it yourself. And some people will be more than happy to let you take care of absolutely everything because it means they don't have to do anything. But then it also means you run yourself into the ground in the process. It can feel also pretty lonely to be that independent because let's face it, humans, part of the interaction that happens where relationships form is sharing responsibility, is shared vulnerability, is divvying things up and delegating and working together. That's how you form a lot of relationships. When you don't let anybody 
assist you or get close and you insist on doing everything yourself, you can end up feeling really lonely and you can also end up feeling very resentful. And yes, you did it to yourself that you're the one overextended and you're doing all this work and nobody's helping. You can end up feeling very resentful about the fact that nobody's helping, even if you were the one who made sure nobody lifted a finger or got, got involved or got in your way. And as a woman, being independent also generally does not go over super well in our society because women are supposed to be relational. Women are supposed to be passive. They're supposed to be more dependent. There are certain outdated, archaic beliefs about what roles women are supposed to play in society. And so when you are independent as a woman, you can come across in in a lot of negative ways. You can seem very aloof. You can seem icy or controlling or domineering or bitchy or closed off. And that makes it really challenging for you, again, to form relationships or to be respected in, say, a work environment, because you are not fulfilling the societal roles that women are supposed to fill. I think that's very, very true for women. But I think you also get that a little bit with men, because humans are supposed to be relational. Both Jake and I are in the same boat of where we are very independent people, though he has different motivators for that. And there always seems to be a little bit of a separation between us and our coworkers. And it always feels like a little bit of aloofness or mistrust on the part of the coworkers. Like they're thinking, oh, you must be better than us. You think you're better than us that you don't want to interact or something. I'm not even sure what it is, but there is that almost like we're standing back and being judgmental because we know how to do things. And the reality is, is both of us just don't want to be bothered with asking other people and all of that. And it entails, you're expected to be relational. And so when you take an activity and you choose to do it on your own, when the work could be shared, and in some cases, maybe for safety reasons, even should be shared, you look like you're going out of your way to avoid other humans where they may not be the case, but that's what it looks like. And other people get offended by that. And that is very, very much true if you're a woman, because I know I feel like I experienced that a lot more than Jake. We've worked together at the same job that sometimes when I've acted the same way and he's acted the same way, I come across looking like a bitch and he comes across looking masculine and capable which I don't feel is fair because we did the same thing. (laughs) Now, very closely related to Mr. Miz or Mix Independent is the lone wolf. Now, the lone wolf is different than the independent person because it's not that they're wanting to do the tasks themselves or prove themselves. They don't want to be around other humans, period. These people are avoiding humanity, They need no one. They want no one. And a lot of times they will actively go out of their way to avoid others. So when you do create that awkward thing at work where people are afraid to approach you because you seem something, they partially want that because it means that people will not talk to them. And that is what they are hoping for. This is the one that I feel is the most me. I am definitely of the lone wolf variety. My independence most definitely stems from a desire to not be around other human beings. I do like being in a relationship, so apparently I like having at least one person around, uh, but I can't be with somebody who needs to be around me all the time either, because for the most part, I would like to spend most of my time alone. I probably spend at least 80% of my time completely by myself. And I really, really fucking like that. I don't like being around other people. I don't like working as a team. As far as motivations for that, one of the big ones is just not seeing any value in being involved with other people. 
And I feel that so hard. I generally do not see value in interacting with others. I know that there are, because when I do meet up with friends of mine that I haven't seen in six months or a year, however long it's been since I forced myself to go out and socialize, I do enjoy it, but I don't need to do it again anytime soon. I just, I don't connect well with people and I don't really want to. I'm mostly not entirely my own island, but I, for the most part, am kind of, and I, I like it that way. And I know part of that for me, as it is for a lot of people who are more lone wolves, had a lot of bad experiences with people in the past. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of damaged relationships. There's a lot of mistrust. But another thing that drives us is personal autonomy not wanting to be controlled by other people, not having to play by other people's rules, not having to play the stupid social scripts, not having to work as part of a team, being able to work on your own and just have your own peace and quiet and not have all of these people around and activity going on around you and not having to, I don't know, play nice, just having autonomy to be on your own and not have anybody controlling anything that you do is a really, really intense driving force behind being a lone wolf for a lot of people. And then also, I don't like being responsible for other people. It's why I generally don't take jobs that require me to work in teams or to be a, a leader of any kind. And another reason for it, I think too, I know this definitely applies for me, but I suspect it also applies for a lot of people who are lone wolves. And I suspect a lot of lone wolves are the neurodivergent variety. And a lot of people who are neurodivergent have sensory overload issues, get easily overstimulated. That is a huge part of why I don't like being around people and especially crowds is there's too much. There's too many colors around. There's too much noise going on. People are too close. I get touched. It's it's uncomfortable. I just get so easily overstimulated and it would just be so much better to just not even be there. Just be completely on my own someplace away from everybody in peace and quiet. I would argue that anybody that is authentically of the lone wolf, that's not just putting this mask on to hide something else that actually does not want to be around other humans. I would argue that pretty much any of them are going to be neurodivergent. And I say that because I think this is where you get into that an introvert, extrovert wiring difference. These people just are not being rewarded for social interaction on the neurochemical level. So when you go into a social interaction as a human, you get certain pleasure chemicals released in your brain. And so you have interaction with a cashier and you get four joy points for this. The individuals that are lone wolves, authentically, they get one joy point or zero joy points. And when you strip all the joy points away and you strip, strip all that benefit, that neurochemical pleasure that comes from interacting with humans, it is very much a task having to navigate, having to come up with thoughts, especially if you are neurodivergent or you're lacking social skills, so you don't understand the correct responses or innately how to navigate the relationships. There's a lot of effort and work that has to be invested and it is not being rewarded. It's not being rewarded relationally. It's not being rewarded on a neurochemical level. You're just bleeding all of your resources out to get nothing back in. And so I would say that most of your lone wolves are 
honestly, probably neurodivergent to some degree. Not that all neurodivergent people are lone wolves, but I would argue that probably all authentic lone wolves are neurodivergent on some level. On the light side of this, when you're wearing this mask, you are a lot less weighed down by relational responsibilities and social debts because you don't have them. And like Ivy said, one of your motivators is autonomy. And you do have control over your choices because you don't have somebody around you telling you what to do. You also are allowed to focus on yourself. You don't have to worry about what your partner wants or your kids need or if your friend needs help moving. You can focus on what you want to do. And that's a really nice spending of your time, especially, again, if you're not rewarded by relational interactions, you can do something that is rewarding to you and makes your life pleasurable. You also learn a lot about yourself and self-awareness, because when you are alone, you have a lot of time to reflect. You have a lot of time to think about yourself, to focus on yourself. And so you end up building a lot of self-awareness. And just like the independent people, you learn a lot of skills. And you learn to be extremely capable as well because nobody's there to help you. Thank God, if you're a lone wolf, you didn't want them there to begin with. And you're not going to feel lonely because I think sometimes with the independent, like Ivy said, that resentment can build. But when you're that lone wolf, that resentment's not there because, yes, it was difficult. And, yes, you had to go out of your way to make this work when you should have had three other people to help you build this building or whatever. But you got to do it on your own. And the benefit of that far outweighs whatever you had to do. So the idea of resentment and loneliness really isn't there that much because you you were very happy and grateful that they weren't there. That is absolutely true. I am happy to do five times the amount of work if I am just allowed to do it myself without anybody else around me. That's like the sweetest gig ever. I'm like, yeah, I will take care of everything that needs to be taken care of here if you just keep all other people away from me. Now, the shadow sides that come along with that, one, you don't really have a whole lot of resources when it comes to networking because you don't network, because you don't speak to people, because you don't like them and you don't want to invest the energy in it. So you do basically have to do everything on your own. And if you don't know how to do it, you better figure it out pretty quick because you will not get assistance more than likely. And then also your social skills end up being impaired. So even if you try to network, it probably will not go well because you will have all the social skills of a feral child raised by wolves. And I give people that disclaimer right at the front when I am on the rare occasion trying to interact with other humans for one reason or another, I always give that disclaimer. I'm like, I don't have social skills. I have all of the social skills of a feral child raised by wolves. It is a fact and I'm not going to change it. So just be aware of that going in. It is also more difficult to find a line of work that you enjoy or even tolerate because most jobs do require you to interact closely with other people. You also end up with some stigmas around you. Everything from just, you know, the basic of being selfish. Also though, you get kind of like that witch stigma around you. You're like that creepy lady that lives by herself that nobody really wants to get close to because she'll probably curse them, which yes, I will, I will curse you. Believe that, please stay away. I don't mind being the, the witch stigma, but some people don't want that. What I don't want though, and this is also a stigma that usually comes with that whole loner, lone wolf thing, is that you seem like you are a serial killer or like you're going to be the Unabomber 
because what human doesn't want to be around other people? When you're avoiding other people, especially if you put on that front of kind of aggressiveness, which I tend to do, people can get a little afraid of you. I think one of the most annoying downsides to being a lone wolf is that people take pity on you and they want to include you, which would be fine if they just casually wanted to include you and just kind of invited you to things. But some of them get really fucking pushy and they treat you like you're damaged and defective somehow and they try to force you into socialization and drag you into it or they'll just show up at your door unannounced because they just they just want to be there for you. You must be going through a hard time if you're not interacting with anybody and you're withdrawn. So I just stopped by to say hi, check on you. That's one of the most annoying downsides of being a lone wolf is the people who get really pushy with trying to help you. I think a shadow side to the lone wolf as well is that it makes your life very difficult for a lot of people. Like Ivy said, it's difficult to find a line of work where you can actually work independently without a boss over your shoulder, without teamwork. And my boyfriend is very, very much a lone wolf. He does not have need for humans for the most part. And I see that happen a lot in his work where things get very, very difficult for him because they expect him to react relationally and they expect him to behave in a certain way. And they see that he goes out of his way to avoid interaction or to do things on his own. And so he does get some of that sociopath or that unabomber or like he's a troublemaker or he's undermining authority and he's not doing any of those things. He's just trying to efficiently do his job on his own without bothering anybody and being left the fuck alone. And society, especially most of our jobs, are not set up in a way that you can be left the fuck alone or not be part of a team at some point. And so it makes it really difficult finding a job that you like. And then once you do get a job, if there are other people around, there's going to be negative reactions from that. Raises, promotions, they're not going to be there. You're more likely to get fired because you're seen as suspicious or like I said, again, undermining the authority of the boss or the manager. So there's some definite lone wolf downs sides to that. Now, there's another role that sometimes gets mistaken for a lone wolf, but they are in fact not lone wolves at all. And those are the free spirits. And they can get mistaken for a lone wolf because sometimes they do seem like they are on their own or they're not connecting with others. But this isn't usually through an active avoidance of other humans, but just they're doing their own thing. And that's what the free spirits are. They're unconventional. They're unique. And so a lot of times these people, when you see them out in society, may look like they are all by themselves or they may look like they are trying to avoid other people. But in reality, they're just marching to their own drum. They're doing their own thing. These people are generally different and a lot of them kind of have a need to be different. They stand out to some degree because they want to. So what drives the free spirit? The people that I have known that I consider to be more that free spirited type, and I would consider our mom to have been that type, they are generally very intensely creative and artistic people that have a very interesting view of the world. And I think that's a big part of what drives them towards kind of having that that wild heart and that free spirit is because they are willing to color outside of the lines and they want to color outside of the lines. They're always playing with the idea of reality and trying to shape it and create it into something else. They're trying to 
give representation and form to how they view reality. And that does set them apart and it makes them different. And I think they actually desire, a lot of them at least, desire to be different. They like that they stand out. They like that they are a little odd, that they dance to the beat of their own drum. Part of that standing out is also trying to inspire other people to do the same, to live more authentically, because they themselves also want to live authentically. They want everybody to be able to color outside the lines. And I think that really is what propels them and compels them to act in ways that they that they do. There's something very beautiful about their desire to paint the world in different colors. Their version of reality, what they're seeing and what they're trying to create is really beautiful. And it's very liberating. And I think it does motivate them onward. And I think that that is the driving force that pushes them forward is trying to create in this world around them what they are seeing that other people do not. And I think that's one of the reasons they get mistaken for the lone wolf a lot is because like the lone wolf, they look like they do not care about other people or relationships or the standards that are set for that. And they don't because they are motivated by something beyond this reality. And so this is where the lone wolf and the free spirit kind of overlap because they're not concerned with the relational expectations that are established. Their inner vision, their passion is so big and so large and so real for them, it transcends a lot of the more typical concerns. And so they do seem quirky or abnormal or eccentric. And they're totally okay with that because they do want to shake things up. On the positive side of all that, on the light side, these people are unique and innovative. These oftentimes are the people that give us the groundbreaking technologies and the beautiful art and the heartbreaking music because they they have these visions inside of them that transcend the reality that currently is. And that is an amazing gift. And they are unafraid to change the world big or small because they don't allow themselves to be limited by those societal expectations they can wreak great change. Sometimes that change doesn't even occur in their lifetime. A lot of artists out there aren't appreciated until decades or centuries later. And I think they are also very authentic to themselves. That's one of the things I am most jealous of because I would love to be a free spirit, but I am held back so much by my fear. And I think they live in a much more fearless way, which is not to say they don't have the negative consequences that come from not being accepted by society. And that is honestly, that's what I'm going towards is to be able to be more of a free spirit, to be able to play that role to some degree because inside I feel that's what I am. And I would love to be authentic. I would love to be truly who I am, regardless of the societal expectations or the societal consequences or the societal reactions to that. I find that one of the most beautiful aspects of the free spirit is the impact that they have on other people. Because if you have ever met a free spirit, you will remember them usually much more vividly than you remember anybody else because they do stand out. There's something different about them. Maybe they dress differently or they create the most amazing art or their perspectives are just so different. It rocks your foundation of reality. Even though our, our mom definitely, she had, she had her issues. There was, there was a lot of shadow with her free spirit. But I am so thankful that she was our mom because a lot of my more unique views on the world came from her 
because she made me think about things differently than other people did because she did think outside the box so much and she did color outside the lines so much and she was so authentic for better or for worse whatever was going on with that woman at that time you knew it because she was always herself and she was always authentic and she was always just so different and odd but in a good way and everybody she met she touched their lives somehow not everybody liked her because that's that's one of those things that comes with the free spirit how how they can have that overlap with the lone wolf is because not everybody's going to respond well to that but no matter what if you have encountered a free spirit they have had some sort of significant impact on you they have changed your life in some way they have expanded your horizon in some way and i think that's one of the most beautiful and amazing things about the free spirit is their ability to have a butterfly effect on anybody's life that they touch. I think some of these others masks and roles, they're looking to make that impression and they look back to see like, okay, did I fulfill my goal? Did I change that reality? For a lot of free spirits, and I saw this with our mom as well, they just left a trail of inspiration and never looked back. So there were so many people whose lives were touched by mom or other artists or other free spirits out there, famous and not famous or infamous. And they didn't look back because they were always looking forward. So you had all of these people that were just so transformed by them and so inspired by them and so changed by them and so in awe of them. And because I think most of these spirits, these free spirits are always looking forward, they don't necessarily see that. And I think that is one of those shadow sides is they do know that they don't belong. Most of them are not unaware of that fact and they do suffer the consequences. You do see a lot of artists like this with great depression or crippling mental health issues in part because of their inability to be accepted by and belong with others. And I think part of that shadow also is because they are always moving forward, they're not able to turn around and see everything that they've done and the changes left in their trail, like like a comet trail almost of just amazing glitter, and they never get to see it. I think, unfortunately, another one of the shadow sides and this is one of the things that I, I definitely saw with my mom is that because they are so free spirited and they're always looking forward and they do have kind of this adventurous spirit to them and sometimes almost a naivete and, and overly hopeful and idealistic, maybe they can be more prone to reckless behavior. They can be more prone to getting involved in toxic relationships with people that tear them down. Because while some people will look at them and be kind of weirded out by them and keep their distance, there's also going to be a lot of people who are genuinely attracted to the way that they shine. And I think that's how my mom ended up in some of the really damaging relationships that she was in, including the one with my father, as I think he was attracted to her brilliance but she outshined him and he could not handle that. And that's part of why he broke her down so much over the years. But I don't think she necessarily considered the consequences. I don't think she necessarily saw red flags that were there that maybe other people would have seen. I think she just gave herself fully to everything that caught her eye or everything that mattered to her meant something to her. She gave herself to it so fully and she didn't always think about the consequences and she wasn't always grounded in reality and wasn't real pragmatic in a lot of ways. And I feel like she suffered 
a lot as a result of that. And that's not to say that every free spirit will be like that, but I do think that tends to happen more to those free spirits. Sometimes the wrong people see how you shine and they want to dull that somehow. They want to take away your shine or they want to absorb it into themselves or they're resentful of the fact that you shine so much brighter than they do. And I, I think that can be one of the most damaging shadow sides to the free spirit is just not always being grounded in reality and sometimes attracting the wrong kind of attention without even realizing it's the wrong kind of attention. On that shadow side too, is even when you do attract the right kind of attention, a lot of times it's still it's still difficult. It's still of a struggle because you are, as a free spirit, you are typically bigger, you are more, you are shinier, you are different. And so even if people are able to not try to tear you down or able to try and see you and not worship you, it can be very hard for them to connect with you because even if they appreciate you as who you are, you are different enough that it can be difficult for other people to connect with you, even though you may want it and even though they may want it. And I think that kind of crosses over some of this uh, free spirit crosses over into another role that we want to talk about, which is the optimist idealist. So the free spirit is dancing to their own drums and along the way they're seeing this vision and they're so focused on it and they that's all they see. And I think the optimist idealist is very very much the same. They are often not necessarily marching to their own drum per se, but they are very focused on an ideal world and they do see things with rose tinted glasses. I feel like the optimist idealist is just a little more, maybe not pragmatic or realistic, but more in tune with society. Yeah, I think one of the differentiating qualities there, and there probably is some overlap between the free spirit and the optimist idealist. The free spirit is... A lot of times, and I'm using our, our mom as an example again, kind of out of touch with what's going on with the rest of the world because it doesn't matter. They're on their own wavelength. They're on their own planet. They're not even connected to this reality. Whereas I think the optimist idealist sees that something is broken and something is wrong. It's not always that they're blind to what's going on. It's not always that they're wearing rose-tinted glasses. I think a lot of them see that something is wrong or broken and not working right and is not benefiting everybody, and we're going to make it better. And that starts with me. And I'm going to be positive, and I'm going to be optimistic, and I'm going to fight for this ideal, and we're going to make things better. That is one of the differentiating features is I think the, the optimist, idealist type genuinely wants to improve the state of things as they are, where sometimes the free spirit isn't even aware of, of what the state of things is, or they just don't care. That is the biggest motivation behind this mask or this role, is they do want to make the world a better place and they do to some degree see that it's not perfect and so they decide to become the light they want to see in the world they want to make a safer world but it's often not just for themselves it's for others there's that definite connection i think to humanity or maybe the ecosystem or a specific animal but there's something out there that they're connecting to and they want to improve the existence for it and they try really really hard to not be overcome by the negativity of, of what's around them so they see it and instead of becoming it or allowing it or being apathetic because of it, they somehow are able to transmute that into motivation 
to move forward and make change in life. And that, of course, means that the optimist and the idealist, they have a lot of light, a lot of light to this mass. They bring a lot of positivity. They fight the good fight and they haven't give up yet, which is saying a lot of something in this day and age, because I think a lot of us have seen so much trauma and so much horror and so much brokenness in society at large that we have given up and we've become apathetic and these people haven't and they are mocked a lot of times openly mocked like oh why even try and laughed at for that and they still don't let them stop that and i think that's amazing like ivy said they are your protesters and your advocates they are trying to make the difference and a lot of times they go out of their way to comfort and uplift others or ensure justice happens for them they are the people out there keeping hope alive honestly i am i have a lot of admiration for the optimist idealist types because i i don't have that anymore i did when i was younger i used to be a very optimistic and idealistic person. And I don't have that anymore. I have definitely, as I've gotten older, become disillusioned. So when I see people who still have that energy in them and that faith in humanity and that warmth and generosity, and they're very community minded and they care so deeply about other people and they are often pretty altruistic about things. I am honestly very amazed by them because even at the most basic level, that takes so much energy to maintain. There is some overlap to a degree between the optimist idealist and the warrior, which I don't think people see very often, but I think it is definitely there. And you do see it in the the people who are advocates and the people who are protesting and the people who are volunteering their time or they're going into professions that are very challenging from a... Um, psychological and emotional standpoint where they do see a lot of the darkness in the world, but they know somebody has to do that job. And so they're willing to do it. What divides the warrior soldier type from the optimist idealist is the perspective maybe that they have of the world and whether or not they believe that change can really happen or not. And I don't think they're willing to go to the levels of say violence that sometimes a soldier or warrior has to, but I do think there's overlap if nothing else, in the determination and the strength of will to keep pressing forward in the face of hopelessness and chaos and destruction, which I think is very, very admirable. And I am always amazed at people who can keep that hope alive and keep that energy going. That does relate directly to some of the shadow sides of this mask, though, is that it can be exhausting because so many people are apathetic, because there is so much wrong that needs to be corrected. And sometimes it feels like you are the only person attempting to do so, or the cause is so small and the problem so big. It can be soul crushing, it can be depressing, it can be overwhelming, and it can be exhausting. Sometimes these people, you have to, and I think that's one of your differences between the warrior and the optimist, is in order to continue holding that hope, you have to be sensitive. You have to be able to remain sensitive to things around you. But that sensitivity also means you are much more easily hurt because you are leaving your heart on your sleeve. So these people do get their heart broken a lot more often. They do experience a lot more pain. They do experience a lot more disappointment because they're not putting up that hard jaded shell around them. This also means that they get left open 
open to being used or scammed. And I think they know it a lot of times too. They are willing to take the risk of being scammed or being hurt if they can potentially have the potential to help somebody. Some people though, unfortunately, if you get into this too much, you end up not being able to temper the optimism with pragmatism or realism. This happens sometimes when you get too disillusioned and too backed in the corner and you're just not willing to accept any more pain or you can't. And instead of putting up a hard shell, you start almost creating your own reality and you aren't able to see reality for what it is. It's almost like a sense of doubling down. And that's a protective mechanism that people use when their convictions are challenged. And it is very hard to hold on to that hope sometimes. And it's very hard to keep fighting the good fight without playing dirty, even when you know that you're sometimes being taken advantage of and that the the issues that you're fighting for are so much bigger than you. There can be that part of you that doubles down when people challenge you with pragmatic viewpoints or with realism, you can't afford to see it because if you see it, you'll falter. And if you falter, it's it's game over because it's really hard to come back from that. Another thing that can be hard from a relational standpoint is that because you are often the light bringer and you are the one keeping the hope alive, people start relying on you for that. And that often means that when you're struggling to keep hope alive, there's not somebody there to bolster you or be an anchor for you. And I think this is particularly true for people where there's a crossover between the role of leader and being an optimist and idealist that can be a very lonely path. And it can be one with a lot of not just responsibility, but also pressure on you because other people are relying on you, not just to get things done, but to provide them with motivation, to provide them with hope, to keep them going when they're having a hard time. So I think that can be another one of those shadow sides for the optimist and idealist is that if you're the one who's always everybody else's anchor, who's there to help you when the storm comes and you feel adrift. Another role that does have some optimism and idealism in it is the saint. And the saint is, I think, a lot more personal on the optimistic, idealistic level. So when you're talking optimism, idealism, a lot of times you are more global, more general, and that can be somewhat specific. But the saint is a lot more hands-on and they're a lot more pragmatic and they are the person that does for everybody else. They are altruistic, altruistic, self-sacrificing, the holy love and light. They not only want to help people, but they crawl down into the muck, mire and feces and they will help people. There's kind of an overlap between saints and heroes. They're the ones who are willing to do the work. We have views of heroes as being almost like demigods whereas saints are much more down in the muck and the mire. They're not flying around with a cape and getting all the glory type thing. But I do think in terms of what motivates them, it's coming from much the same place. There's this desire to save others, to be the hero, to be the savior, along with wanting to help others and wanting to make the world a better place and wanting there to be justice in the world and and all of those good things. I think there's also some some shadow sides to the motivation itself. And one of those is that a lot of times people who are of this 
saint or hero type mentality. And I've seen this a lot in people that I think I would probably classify in that category is that many of them feel that they need to do this work to make up for their own past sins or for their own mistakes or for their flaws, or they feel that they have to do this work to make up kind of by proxy for other people's sins and mistakes and flaws. So they end up kind of playing the role of the martyr and that becomes part of their motivation. Over time, one of the things that can happen when you do play the role of the saint and you play the role of the hero for for a while is that on some level, whether you mean to or not, and you probably don't, you can start feeling a sense of superiority over other people because you are fighting the good fight and you are in there making things happen and you are self-sacrificing and you are altruistic and you are putting yourself on the line and you're trying to be love and light all the time. And because you're putting in this effort that you don't see other people putting in, I think that is a natural byproduct when you play that role really intensely for too long. And that can become a motivation to continue with that path. But I don't think it stems from there. I think it's something that kind of tends to happen as a byproduct over time. And part of the reason why that can, why you can start to develop that sense of superiority is because when you are constantly rushing in to help other people or save them, you do get a lot of appreciation and you do get a lot of this, this hero worship, in a sense, from other people. And for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people who play this saint role, one of the other motivations does come from a religious background or at least a spiritual background. You are you are compelled to to do this work because of some higher purpose, some higher power that you are acting on behalf of because your spirituality is really important to you. There's a lot of people who fall into this heroic saint type of role because it is so linked to their spiritual conviction and they want to improve the state of things. And this is not to say anything negative about the saint or the hero role either, because I feel like all of the masks we talk about, there are reasons in there to give you a sense of power, to give you a sense of control, to give you a sense of safety, to get validation, because these are all human needs. And for some of us, it is difficult to get these needs met because of our mental health history, because of our neurodivergence, because of the trauma we've experienced. And so we do have to play these roles or put on these masks in order to to get the things we need to get. And luckily, like with all masks, the saint and the hero also has a lot of positive effects because of it. So just like all of them, the motivation is mixed, but you do end up helping a lot of people. And I would say there's a lot of crossover in some ways between the saint and the warrior. They are definitely different people, but both of them are willing to get down and dirty to do what is needed. They also are very, like Ivy said, you do tend to sometimes get that sense of superiority, but that also comes from the warrior. And I think it stems a lot from that same place as well, that you're seeing the dirty, dark side of life and you are actively interacting with it. And that changes something in you and it, it affects your ability to connect with other people. But you are 
you are in the muck and the mire and you are helping people and you're inspiring people and you're loving people. And a lot of these saint heroes are willing to help those that others would shy away from. Sure, you know, I'll, I'll go down to the homeless shelter once a month as opposed to, no, I know these people. These aren't homeless people. That is Sally. And this is Frank. And you know who these people are because they are real to you. And you have a heart-to-heart connection with them. It goes beyond just the general, oh, I want to do good in the world. But I want to make a difference for that person. I want to change their life. I want to help save them. The other thing with the, the saint and hero type is that they are always willing to step outside of their comfort zone in order to help. They generally are willing to do almost anything if it means helping other people. They are tremendously generous people that will go out of their way for complete and utter strangers without even a second thought. They're the first ones to show up. They're the first ones to volunteer. They're they're always first in line to help and be present for other people, which I think is a, that is a phenomenal aspect of this role. And it's another one of those ones like the, the optimist and idealist that I really, really admire because that takes so much energy and so many of your resources to give of yourself that completely. And the fact that they're able to do it for so long is actually really astounding because most of these people, this becomes a huge part of who they are at a very fundamental level. One of the the other things that it is positive as well for these people more on a personal level is that they end up learning a lot of really valuable skills because often to rush in and save other people or to help other people with things, you end up picking up skills along the way. They also end up developing very good networks for resources, which is very beneficial for them when they are helping other people. That's one of the benefits that that benefits everybody in this scenario. They know people on other sides of the world a lot of the time who can help somebody out. Now, on the shadow side of things, though, unfortunately for a lot of these heroes and the saints, This isn't something you just do outside of the home. This is something, like Ivy said, it becomes your life. And so a lot of your relationship dynamics get skewed. Because when you are the savior and you're the person saving and you're the person helping and you're the person doing for somebody else who has less, that puts you in a position of power, that puts you in a position of authority, even if you're not seeking it out, it just does. And it puts you in a position where other people depend on you. That can result in a lot of skewed relationship dynamics, both romantic and just platonic, where people are relying on you for everything. And that can also be difficult because you may not have anybody to rely on, but everybody relies on you. This can also be true for those individuals that play the saint or the hero and there are strings attached that then causes rifts in relationships and debts need to be owed and resentments get built up on both sides of the fence because the debt isn't being paid. And I will openly admit to being one of those people that when I do offer help or I do offer assistance or I do step in to quote unquote save somebody, there are strings attached with that. And that is because of my own past trauma and my own fear of being used against my will. And there are strings 
that come with that. But when you do attach those strings, of course, you negatively impact the relationships around you because you're not you're not really giving altruistically then you're giving for a purpose and it starts feeling manipulative even when you're not intending it to be. As, as a human, as any human, if we're honest with ourselves, it is very difficult to remain altruistic for very long, to just be completely self-sacrificing and completely giving without expecting anything either in return or expecting people to at least pay it forward, which I think this is another thing that comes with the shadow side of this role is that because they are always going out of their way to help everybody else, they can have sometimes a tendency to guilt trip other people for not doing that kind of work. Because you give everything you have to it, you start expecting other people to do the same thing. Also, one of the things that can come with this as well is the bottling up of some difficult, challenging, negative emotions. You're try they're trying to live up to this mask of being love and light all the time and being altruistic all the time and being truly self-sacrificing. And that is very difficult, if not impossible, to maintain forever. We are still human and we all have human needs and we all have emotions and I think that these people are much more likely to bottle up emotions that they perceive to be negative, one, because they don't want to burden other people, but also because they are love and light. And I have seen this in a lot of a lot of people that I've known is this attitude that I have to be love and light all the time. I cannot feel envy. I cannot feel resentment. I cannot feel anger. I cannot feel these emotions because I have to be holy. I have to be pure. I have to be love and light. And that is not a reasonable expectation. But I think because they're so devoted to that role and they're trying to set the example and they it does become your life, so it becomes a huge part of your identity, You, they're more likely to bottle up these emotions rather than processing them, rather than seeking out help from other people when they're feeling these things. I, I think it, it can become very damaging internally when you're trying to be love and light all the time and not giving yourself any leeway to just be human. And I think also one of the other downsides is that because this is your whole life and you are giving everything that you have to these causes, it's almost impossible not to base your sense of worth and your sense of self-esteem on your ability to save and protect and assist and guide other people. Sometimes the individuals that do fall into this hero saint role that wear this mask, they are doing this to not do their own work. Their own work is so terrifying and those internal battles are too huge for their ability to handle. And so they're trying to process it, but through other people. And that does mean when that other person is lost or fails that is extremely damaging to them because it's not just the relationship that was built, but it triggers back onto all of the stuff that they have not been able to work with or process yet. Another role that also doesn't necessarily always do the work and tries to divert away from it is the magician. They're the person that's putting on a performance or putting on an act to help divert attention away from things. So they will keep the peace and they will make other people happy or they will make the situation better 
by creating a performance, by creating a diversion. Your class clown is an excellent example of this. They're doing something to break up the tension, but you're not really seeing them. You're seeing the act that they create. Sometimes the motivation behind that is to not have to process your own stuff. So you're wanting to make things lighter, not just for the world, but for yourself as well. You're wanting to create almost a positive feedback loop so that you can feel better because you don't yet have the capacity to do the work necessary on the demons that you have. They do see that the world can be a pretty messed up place. And maybe they don't necessarily believe fully that things can really change, but what they do believe is that you can create a break from reality, something that is brighter, that is happier, that's, that's not, it's not really real, but it's, it's a diversion. It is a distraction. It's a break. It's entertainment. The thing that, can, that comes to mind for me with the magician type and I know that movie got pretty dark, but the original Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, that first time they all step into that room that where everything is just made of candy. It's just this wonderland made of candy. That's what I think of when I think of the magician is that, yes, the world is still a harsh place, but let me take you even for a moment into this world where things are better where there's joy, where there's laughter, where there's a sense of wonder, where there's this innocence that can be reclaimed, even if it's just for a while. The magician is capable of taking people from tense situations and from their, their daily stress and from the harshness of the world and give them something to distract them from it and make them believe in magic again for a while and give them hope and give them an opportunity to reset so that when they go back into the harshness of the world, they feel refreshed enough that they can take that back on again without feeling so disillusioned and hopeless. That's one of the biggest pieces of light that comes with this masquerade role is that idea of creating that escape and creating that moment. And in some ways, literally, you also create a bit of safety because sometimes we get escalated and escalated and escalated to the point we will break. And that magician is able to come in and give you a pause so that you can de-escalate enough that you don't break. And in some families, especially some trauma histories, there's some people that have learned to play this role to literally provide safety when they create a diversion when they create entertainment or a drop of joy, somebody hurt. And sometimes that somebody is them and somebody times that somebody is someone else. But they are bringing joy and wonder to the world, but they're also bringing a sense of safety. And that really is a very, a very needed service for many of us to have a break, to have a second, to catch our breath, to find a little window of safety in the craziness that surrounds us. What amazes me about this is that these people often can do this even when they are extremely depressed. Robin Williams is an excellent example of this. He's an amazing, wonderful performer. And so many people never knew that he struggled with depression. He was able to create that wonder and safety and joy and relief for other people when he couldn't do that for himself. There's somebody in my life who definitely fills the magician role. It's, it's my friend Gina, and I am 
always amazed by her. She is the light in so many other people's world. She has the ability to, and I don't even know how she does it, but she, she just has the ability to come into your life. And if you're having a really bad day, she just turns it around. And within 10 minutes of being around her, you just feel so much better. Her, her humor, the way that she smiles, her how animated she is, how validating and encouraging she is. She really does give you this break away from reality. But like Autumn was talking about with Robin Williams, one of the things that I've been witness to, because she does play this role for so many other people, and she has very few people in her life that she can fall apart to. I've seen the flip side of that. I've seen her at times when for months at a time, she is... She'll be really active and social. She'll be spending lots of time with her family and her friends, and she's helping people out, and she's the life of the party, and she's making people laugh, and she's helping her friends who are depressed and having a really hard time. And then she comes home and she cries for hours because she herself is feeling so drained and depressed, and she's having so many of her own issues, but nobody ever sees it. But because she experiences those lows, that is part of what motivates her to bring that light into other people's lives because she knows how crushing it can feel and she doesn't want anybody else to have to feel that way. And so she can set aside her own pain and she can mask it so well that no one, even the people that are closest to her, even know she's hurting. But there are shadow sides to this. And one of those is that people generally can't tell when you are struggling. And a lot of times you aren't actually being seen. What's being seen is that image that you're presenting, the the magic act. But they don't see you because that's not the point. The point is for them to see the reality that you are creating for them, to see the illusion. And they're so reliant on you for this break from reality that you are not getting that for yourself a lot of times. And sometimes when those people do get a glimpse and they do see you struggling, if you've been the one who's been bringing them up and creating this reality for them, that they need in order to function and they see you falter and they see you cry or they see you struggle or be exhausted. They can't handle seeing that because they need you to be this role for them. And so they, sometimes you get people who are resentful when you are no longer filling this role for them. And so that can give you a very jaded sense when it comes to relationships, because you don't know who you can actually trust. You don't know who actually really loves you versus who's there because you're putting on a good show. Another piece of the shadow side of this particular mask, too, is that a lot of individuals that place this mask do it on autopilot. And some of them realize and some of it don't. And this is especially true if this was developed as a trauma response. You're doing it instinctually. You're doing it automatically without realizing it. And so you end up using a lot of resources to maintain this. And sometimes you even do realize it, but you're also aware that if you let it drop, there are significant consequences. So this is one of those masks that once you put it on, it is extremely difficult to take off because it does build up expectations from other people around you. Another mask that happens with is 
the helper. And these are people, they're not necessarily out to save the world or do anything big. They just want to help. They volunteer for tasks. They take the load off others. They are a peacekeeper, a people pleaser, a team player. They put that mask on and it's hard to take it off because you do start building up those expectations. Some of the motivations behind the helpers, sometimes kind of like the leader, you don't necessarily trust others to do things. A lot of them want to be liked or accepted. And Helping people out is a great way to get acceptance and it's a great way to get liked. It's also a great way to get sometimes promoted or perks at work as well. Sometimes some of them do it to avoid their own responsibilities because it's sometimes easier to help other people than it is to help yourself. Some of us, and I I will say us because I am a helper, you just want to be seen as as helpful. You want to be seen as useful because that is... That's where your value's at. You've been told you're worthwhile when you're productive, and you very much internalize that. And I think some of us also, and I will admit to this too, you do it because you want to be safe. When you're helping others and people see you as helpful, you do create a window of safety for yourself because they don't want to swat down the person that's going to help them. And so that anger or that threat then gets directed away from you. There's also a lot of people who are helpers because they're genuinely just like very sociable people. This is not something I particularly understand because I am not a sociable person, but I have known lots of helpers who are wonderful people and even I can't help but like them um, because they are genuinely sociable and they care. They're interested. They're interested in what's going on. They're interested in you. They want to know your story. They want to see what they can do to help you. And I think a big thing that drives them is that they genuinely care and they like other people. They're just social. They like other humans. I'm amazed by that, but there are people that are like that. There are plenty of people that are like that. The the light side, and there's lots of light sides with being a helper, they are really likable. Like I said, it's, it's real hard not to like them. One person that I used to work with, and I am not sociable at work, I'm not sociable anywhere really, but I had what I would consider to be what I called a friend crush on her. She's one of the few human beings that I've ever encountered where I'm like, I I don't want to put in the effort really to get to know anybody, but if I was going to, I'd really want to put in the effort to get to know her. We have become friends over the years, but we ended up becoming friends because she was so helpful to me. When her mom passed away, she came up to work on her day off and she left me a gift basket. Just, you're grieving right now in a very acute and intense way. And I know what that feels like and it sucks. And I want to do something for you, even though we're not close. That's the kind of energy that helpers have. They really do care about other people and they want to help and they want to be involved and they want to make your life better and they want to make things easier for everybody. And they do want to keep the peace and they want everything to be good and they want everybody to feel happy and they want everybody to feel uplifted and useful and important. And that's one of those light things about them is they genuinely do want what's best for everybody, themselves included, but they do want what's best for everybody. And another one of the light things that comes from that is because they are like that and they are so sociable, the entire group benefits from having them there because the helper often makes sure that things get get done 
and they're willing to help anybody with any task. So there's increased productivity overall for the group. And everybody tends to get along better when the helper is there because they tend to grease the wheels. So they help with relational things and they also help with increased productivity as well. There is definitely a lot of light with the helpers and there's so many benefits. And and it does go for them as well, because I think a lot of people do get validation out of this and they usually are appreciated. And so they get a sense of competence and a sense of being helpful and a sense of being productive. So they get a lot out of this. And because they are so people oriented, when somebody else is happy, they genuinely feel happy as well. So if this is so amazing... Is there anything shadow about it? Unfortunately, yes. Like all masks, there are some shadow pieces to this. A big one is that you can get overextended and you don't always get appreciated. Sometimes, especially at jobs, the boss doesn't see that as anything more than now they can give you more and more and more tasks and you get buried. And then the boss may also take credit for you. And so sometimes it's kind of hurtful because you're trying to be helpful. You don't necessarily want the credit, but it kind of sucks to never be noticed or validated at all, especially when other people are stealing the work that you've done. On another person, like not necessarily shadow to you, you can sometimes create a micromanagement situation or infantilize other people. Because when you are helping, you are a little bit involved, you got your fingers in all the pies, sometimes people can't move forward without you because you hold the critical components and you hold the critical knowledge and you're not delegating because you're trying to take some of that responsibility from them. Nobody can move without you and that can cause, that can cause some issues, especially in work environments. And just like with many of these other masks, another area that tends to be a shadowy side for the helper is that they can tend to struggle with their personal relationships as well because they tend to overcommit and overextend themselves. You're noticing a theme there that tends to pop up in a lot of masks and a lot of roles. And I think a lot of people have that issue. Also, one of the things that can happen in the shadow side of being the helper is that because you are always helpful and you're always doing things for everybody else, other people start relying on you so much that they don't even think to offer you help because they just assume, well, you've got it. Like you're so good at all of these things and you're able to help everybody else. So obviously you don't need any help from me. So you don't generally get the help that you need a lot of times. And that can leave room for resentment to build because again, like when you overcommit and you're overextended, you get exhausted and it would be real nice to get some help. But if you're the one who's always helping other people, especially if you don't trust other people to help you, you can start feeling resentful about all of the responsibility that's on your shoulders. The last mask we're going to talk about today is one that you didn't necessarily choose, but was maybe handed to you. And we're going to be calling this one the proxy. And this is basically when you are living someone else's dream for you. You're being successful to a parent's dream or a lover's dream or a loved one's standards. You are playing out somebody else's role that they wrote for you. And a lot of time the motivation for this one is to 
maintain that relationship with the loved one. Most often, not always, but most often, this comes in the terms of a parent creating an ideal for their child and that child living the ideal. And people may wonder, well, why are they doing that? They could be their own person. They need to march to their own drum. But they're doing it because they value the relationship with the parent. They value the relationship with that person. And a lot of times they're also they're grateful for what was done. A lot of the negativity that comes in behind the proxy is from white culture, where we think you need to be your own person and you need to be independent and you need to create your own identity. And there are very much valuable aspects of that, yes, that are very mentally healthy. But that is not everybody's culture. And even within white culture, that is not what everybody values or what they want to do. Sometimes parents do sacrifice themselves so much. They work three, four, five, six jobs so that you can go to college and have an easier life. And so when you are that proxy, maybe you didn't want to be a lawyer, maybe you didn't want to go to college, but you're doing that because you have gratitude and you have love for what that person put in to allow you that option. Another one of the the things that can motivate it is not only just fulfilling those expectations and fulfilling those dreams of whoever it was that did sacrifice so much for you, but also I think a lot of people, they end up taking those paths as well because those paths provide opportunities for them to be financially successful and secure enough that they can give back to whoever it was that supported them. They can buy their parents or their grandparents a new car, they can help them with their bills, or they can buy them a new house, depending on how successful they are, you know, those sorts of things. Sometimes part of the motivation is the path that they want me to take will provide me opportunities to have a lot of financial security and success, which would allow me pay them back for everything that they did for me. And it's not necessary. Like, I'm sure some of it, for some people, at least is kind of a sense of obligation. But I think there's also a lot of people who genuinely have so much love and respect for this person and they want to honor them by showing their gratitude in a very tangible way. They want to be able to provide an opportunity for that loved one to have a better life moving forward so they don't have to work so hard anymore. They don't have to struggle so much anymore. You are also generally successful, it, whatever it is that you have decided to do because you gave it your all and you followed that path and you were so supported in that path and given so many resources by that loved one who sacrificed on your behalf. You also get the positive reinforcement of being the golden child. You are everything that your parents could ever have hoped for. <laughs> Outside of American white culture, at least, there are a lot of people that have close relationships with multiple generations of their families and sometimes even live within the same household. That, that can be a very typical thing. And so sometimes you're not always just making the parent proud or whatever. You're also providing a point of pride and joy and happiness for the entire family. When you are the person who, for the first time in generations, is able to do that and willing to do that and can be that 
that success, like that is not just creating pride for the person who was sacrificing on your behalf. It can be a point of pride for the entire family as well. Another piece of light that goes into motivation as well is when you do follow somebody else's dream, it is easier, especially if that dream is a path that will lead to societal success. You know, we talked about the warrior that wants the rigidity or the structure or the code to make their life simpler. I think it's the same piece here. When your family wants you to be a lawyer and they're providing you the money to go to college and being a lawyer is successful in our country, that is an easy promising path to go on. And you don't have to invest in machete carving your way through something else. You can just walk down this path. But again, this is not for everybody. I think culture plays a lot into this, but there's a lot of other personal psychological factors as well. And so this can come with shadow pieces, especially dependent on how that parent or loved one is attempting to get you into the dream. Because this one can border on creation of trauma and invalidation and some serious psychological issues for people even when it's done lovingly, even when it's done within a culture where it makes sense, it can still cause some issues, unfortunately. And part of that is that you don't necessarily get to be your own person or live your own dream or seek out your own ideal. And one of the other shadows that, that comes with this is there, it's a lot of pressure. It is a whole lot of pressure to fulfill somebody else's goals and live somebody else's dreams. When you have that weight on your shoulders all the time, that that is a lot of pressure. And some people buckle under that pressure and some people rebel against that pressure and will want to act out because of it. So it's one of the shadow sides of that is just feeling the burden and the weight of pressure. And it can also give you the sense sometimes that your worth is based on your accomplishments. Whether or not the loved one who's pushing you on that direction, pushing you in that direction means to do that. When there is all that pressure and they are really trying to guide you, even if it's coming from a space of love, it can your your brain can begin to translate that as, oh, I am only deserving of love and I am only worthy if I fulfill these expectations, if I fall short of those expectations, I am a failure, I am a disappointment, I am unworthy of love. One of the things that can happen as well is that at some point in your life, you may go through a significant identity crisis because people change over time. And while maybe when you were younger, you were fine following this path and you wanted to follow this path or you were at least neutral about it or, or something, like you were cool with it on some level, you may reach a point in your development as a person where you've been through enough things or you've worked enough time in this field and you, dis- and you discover that you hate it or you marry somebody that your parents thought was good for you, but it's a relationship that's going to fall apart. Like it's not good. You've been following everybody else's ideas of what is right for you. You may reach a point later on in adulthood where you realize this is not what I wanted and it's not turning out to be the success that I was guaranteed it was going to be, or this is not actually a happy life. 
And that can cause an identity crisis because you may decide that you can't handle this life anymore. And now you're in your, maybe your fifties and you're trying to rebuild your life. You're trying to do something else, especially once that person who was guiding you and pushing you once they pass away, because it is generally somebody who is older than you by quite a bit. So they probably will pass away long before you do. Once they pass and that pressure is no longer there and that voice is no longer there telling what you telling you what you should be doing, what you need to be doing, that can prompt can prompt that identity crisis to begin as well, because now your reason for living this life is not there anymore. And if you weren't really happy with that life, well, now what? All of these masks, they have positive consequences. All of these masks have negative consequences. And all of these masks and all of these roles, we play them for our own individual reasons that are extremely personal to help meet the needs that we need to have met at that time. That's the beauty of the mask. And one of the reasons I've always liked Halloween, you know, to tie that back in, is the ability to put on a mask to help you meet the needs, to play a role to get what you need to get out of life. Because sometimes on our own, naked and vulnerable, we just don't have the capacity. But when you can hide behind something that's established, when you can hide behind an identity that other people read, it's easier to get our needs met psychologically. Which isn't to say go around masking all the time, but I think if you can learn to play these roles and control how you play those roles and learn to build flexibility and fluidity in how you use these masks, I think they can be to some degree psychologically healthy until you can get to the point that you can be authentically you and live in a world where it is safe to be authentically you. And with that, we will go ahead and wrap up today and wish you a extremely happy Halloween or at least a not horribly scary unpleasant one if you are not a Halloween fan. And with that, we will have Ivy throw you our connecty bits. Ivy? Also, I just want to note, if you are a parent this Halloween, don't force your child to dress up as a laundry basket. You can ask if they're cool with it, but I'm telling you, it leaves a long-term negative impact. So just remember that when you're picking your kid's costume, they should be involved in that process. Don't just, if you want to get creative in that way, you dress up as a laundry basket. That's all I'm saying. All right. Anyway, you can find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com. You can find us on Facebook as Different Functional. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok as Different underscore Functional. You can find us on Patreon as different functional. We would also love it if you could let other people know that we exist. Again, tell tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your family, tell your crazy Uncle Harry, tell your dog Fred, tell everybody about us. Just scream it from the rooftops. We would really love that. We would especially love it if you left us a rating, a review, a comment, anything. We would love to interact with you. We would love to get our name out there. We would love to have more listeners. And we are super duper grateful for all of our amazing listeners that we already have. We're so glad that you keep coming back and listening to us ramble on.
We do appreciate that very much. So thank you for listening. And do please interact with us out there on social media or on the podcast with those ratings and reviews. And so for today, we will go ahead and wrap up. And as always, remember, y'all, different does not mean defective. (laughs) 